Welcome, everyone, to the Religious Learning Program. We have a guest I'm very excited about today, and is Amateur Exegete. Uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So, so one of the first things I want to talk about is a lot of people may not know what exegete is. Can you want to explain that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, so um, an exegete is just somebody who, who seeks to explain, to understand, to work out the meaning of a text, and in my context, of course, it's the Bible that I'm uh, exegeting. And of course, the opposite of that is an eisegete, somebody who reads into the text what they want to find. Uh, I read out what's there and try to understand it, and it's in, it's in its original historical context uh, where I can. So, so you're by far my favorite atheist on Twitter. Oh, well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, you, you take the Bible for what it is, and uh, you try to figure out what you know is actually trying to say. Like I said, in its historical context, and I know this is probably an annoying question you get all the time. I know I would be annoyed getting this question, and Bart Ehrman has said he kind of gets annoyed with this question. As an atheist, why even bother with the Bible? Yeah, well, let me give you one of uh, Bart Ehrman's answers. It's probably in terms of Western culture, the most significant piece of literature or anthology of literature um, in existence because it's so shaped the mind of uh, our forebears. Uh, if you think about the way history has developed since the end of the Roman Empire, it was Christianity that really shaped and molded not just not just the way people thought, but the way they lived. Uh, for better, for worse, uh, of course. But, you know, the, the significance of the Bible cannot be understated. And I think we do a great disservice to ourselves when we think that it's just another book in a long line of books. It's just so much more than that. And so I think, for me, to understand it better is to understand how our world was shaped. Um, another reason is I like it. I like the Bible. I I. It's fun. It's a good. It's there's some really excellent literature in there, and um, so why not? You know, some scholars that I read love other books like the Iliad or the Odyssey or ancient Mesopotamian literature. I just happen to, as a non-specialist, I happen to love the Bible. So, you know, that, that'd be how I'd, I'd respond to that <laughs> that question. <laughs> and I. I think I'd be in the same position if, if I was to ever lose my faith. Is I, I completely agree with you. It's it's been one of the piece of literature, at least in the Western world and in in the Near East, has completely shaped uh, civilization. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you if you wanted to study the Middle East and get to know what the Middle East was all about, if you didn't know anything about the Quran, you, you would know nothing about. Iran or, or you know Iraq or any of those places, you know it's such foundational literature, and I think holds true even for especially in Europe, but it, but of course in the United States. So whenever you do your studying for the Bible and trying to figure out what it's trying to tell us, uh, what resources do you use? Yeah, so if I'm in the New Testament, uh, the first thing I do is I take up my Greek New Testament, you know, try to understand what the text is actually saying, apart from an English translation. Um, I do that sometimes um, with the Hebrew Bible, but my Hebrew is not as good as my Greek, so I'm very dependent upon um, you know, secondary literature for the Hebrew Bible. But with the New Testament, I can usually dig into a text, 
and figure out what it's saying and then have a good lexicon on hand. But of course, beyond that, um, I arm myself with really good commentaries by reputable scholars, people that are published in their field. Uh, they've been around for a while and you know know what they're talking about. So, for example, if I was going to you know study the Gospel of Mark, which is my favorite book of the New Testament, uh, Joel Marcus's commentary is indispensable. You just have to have it. It's an excellent book. Um, another one would be uh, R.T. Francis commentary on the Gospel of Mark. It's also a really good one. Um, so just having good secondary literature is just you, you got to have it. You can't you can't do good Bible study without it. And I don't have the Holy Spirit anymore, so I don't have that. <laughs> uh, so for for your past work, you had you've had a blog, which I'm not making the regular posts like you used to. You have a podcast, and you're coming out with a second season for the podcast. And I want to compliment you. You have one of the best, I think, religious podcasts out there, okay. uh, mainly for two reasons. Uh, not only is your content very high quality, but also very, very easy to listen to. I think the production and just easy listening is also great. So you have this great combination of both of them. Well, so you. if you'd like, please give the listeners what season one was about and what season the upcoming season number two is going to be about yeah so season one was um 10 episodes long and it focused in on uh what i would refer to as contradictions in the gospel accounts um so obviously most atheists when they rail on the bible like to highlight the contradictions and so i'm an atheist so i'm gonna do that too but <laughs> the difference is instead of <laughs> instead of simply pointing them out I want to know why they're there. What were these authors thinking? Um, so the consensus of New Testament scholars is that the Gospel of Mark was written first, and that the uh, other two synoptic authors, Matthew and Luke, had Mark before them, and probably John did too. There's a, there's a growing body of research to show that the Gospel of John also used the Gospel of Mark. But when Matthew and Luke use Mark as the basis of their own stories, they make significant changes in certain places, which I think is absolutely interesting. And so the first season of the podcast was all about exploring those differences and then, you know, postulating reasons why they made those changes. Uh, so one of my favorite examples is in 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 the, the book of Mark, uh, there's a scene where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, the Pharisees, actually. And they ask him to give him a sign from heaven. And Jesus says, in the Greek text, it says, you know, he says, a, a, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign. Well, the Greek says, if any sign is given to it. And that's all it says. It's an if statement with no then. It's a it's bizarre. Like, if you did that in English, you'd, you'd look at, if I said that to you, you'd be like, well, if, then what, you know. Either way. Uh, but, so Jesus makes an oath. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has that same scene, but he changes the Greek. And the reason he changes the Greek is because he doesn't like Jesus to make oaths. Because in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't swear by anything. Don't make any oaths. Um, so he changes the Greek, and he adds, of course, the sign of Jonah. And that's because Matthew is specifically wanting to um, kind of suppress Mark's uh, 
his uh the motif of like the secret messiah the, the 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 secrecy motif that he has there and wants to make it more obvious that jesus has come to suffer he's come to die um and 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 so that's just one example of many but um it's, it's those kinds of changes that i just think are very very interesting and very telling so one of the things you just mentioned is uh the, the secret in mark um and this isn't really hammered out in the other gospels why do you think mark has a secret that nobody knows about including the disciples except for the author and the reader yeah i you know that's a that is a question that has been raging for the last <clears throat> oh century or more uh, ever since was it william reed who wrote his book on the secret secrecy motif some scholars think that it's a, that it was a historical fact that jesus really was secretive about his about who he was. Um, I don't think that's the case, and most scholars that I read don't think that's the case. They think this is a literary motif that Mark has introduced. But why he's done that is just so... I mean, I mean, I don't think I, I have a good answer to it. Why would you want to keep that such a secret? Unless you were writing, maybe, perhaps, in a way to... Prevent controversy. Uh, like we just we don't know enough about who Mark was, or to whom he was writing, to give definitive answers to questions like that. But there's scholars who try to, and so for me, this the secrecy motif. Every time I think I have it nailed down, I, I don't. I just I realize quickly just how how uh, how <laughs> how little I know about the secrecy motif. Uh, but you're right; it's everywhere. It's in places like why do the demons know who he is? But he but the disciples are so confused you know or why does why does peter confess it in mark uh chapter 8 but jesus immediately says don't tell anybody like what why what is the point of that wouldn't you want people to know who you are you know so i don't know it's such a such a wild a wild idea got to love mark <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you really yeah, do. What, what, yeah, for sure. And, and one of the more interesting things that I came across uh, recently, um, and I'm sure you probably have read all about this, but the the belief that Mark was an acted play at one time, um, and and it was because a, a lot of the scenes that are set seems like they're better if they're acted out rather than just read to a community. Do you have any opinions on that? Yeah, so I'm not. I've I've read about that, uh, not very deep. I, I do think the Gospel of Mark was meant to be read aloud. I th I think that's pretty clear. In fact, I think most New Testament literature was. Uh, so when you read the the epistles of Paul, uh, he, well, he explicitly First Thessalonians, he says, "Read this to the congregation." You know, these are, and that's because most people then were not literate; they were illiterate people. Um, so you you needed somebody to kind of to to communicate that to you, but I don't know I don't know if it was meant to be a play or not. Um, uh, my feeling is 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 uh is maybe, but definitely read aloud. I mean, you that would be indispensable. You just have to read that aloud to people. That's yeah, a good question. I, I, I agree. It, at best, to me, it seems like if that is any true to that, it's going to be he whoever Mark formed into a literary read aloud piece rather than just a uh, a play um, yeah yeah exactly. so uh trying to, trying to 
who Mark is. So Mark, it seems, at least in the in in the early church fathers and the early Christians, it seems to be more of a uniform opinion that John Mark wrote it. However, mm -hmm. none of the Gospels say who actually wrote them. Uh, I, I, your your opinion is probably the same as mine. It, it's for one probably impossible to tell if it was John Mark, but it seems against the grain to identify these are the actual people that wrote these gospels. So you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, so first of all, uh, Robert uh, Gulish makes this point in his commentary. He says, regardless of who wrote it, it doesn't matter for exegesis. It, it really is not important at all. Um, although I, I would I would add the caveat of of perhaps the issue of where where it was written might inform interpretation, or even when it was written might inform interpretation. But as far as authorship is concerned, you know, it doesn't really have any bearing on it. But um, yeah, the, the all four gospels are anonymous, all four of them. And despite what apologists will try to tell you. Uh, they'll they're, they're they're anonymous documents, and the titles were probably added in the second century. Um, and so, the attribution to John Mark, which is relatively early, if it's if it's Papias who really did attribute it uh, that early, uh, that's significant. But it's Papias too, and and the way he talks about Mark, it sometimes you think this isn't the Mark that we know. This is it just. It doesn't sound quite like the Gospel of Mark that we know. And the tradition isn't uniform. It, they may all attribute it to John Mark, but the way they go about it isn't always the same. Uh, like when it was written, uh, I think some of the early church fathers said it maybe it was after Peter's death. Some said during Peter's death, or pre before Peter's death. Um, so there's not uniformity exactly in the when, um, even if they do have the who. So, But again, in terms of exegesis, it doesn't really matter. Who cares who wrote it? It was written by somebody. It had to be, you know? Um, right. And so beyond that, um, if you're just looking to try to understand the text itself, for my purposes, who cares? You know, if you really thought it was the recollections of Peter, I mean, that would have some significance to you, but it doesn't read like it. It's the recollections of Peter, you know? Right. At least not. And poor Pat, he, is, uh, he has a spe special place in my heart because you see, he's called him an idiot. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. He was not fond of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and with Jesus uh, and his family, and there, you touched on this in your first season of the of the podcast. Uh, the Gospels seem to indicate that there might have just as a surface reading, a kind of a, a uh, friction between them whenever uh, Jesus' mother comes searching for him, says, you know, where's Jesus? And Jesus like, never heard of these people. If you want to expand on that? Yeah, so yeah. So in Mark's gospel, he, uh, I think it's Mark chapter 3. Uh, yeah, Mark chapter 3. <laughs> there's the calling of the 12 narrative, and then the scene shifts to... It seems like it's either Capernaum or Nazareth. It's not really clear. It just says he went home. Um, so where is home for Jesus? He's from Nazareth, but he also lives in Capernaum. Either way. So he <laughs> he goes there, and he goes into this house. It's so crowded that you know they can't even eat. Um, but then uh, the text says that uh, that the literally it reads those from beside him. 
It's is what the Greek text says. But um, they 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 go out and they they start saying he's he's crazy that he's he's beside himself. He's lost his mind. Yeah. So Mark chapter three verse twenty one. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. So the NRSV says, for people were saying. Well, that's not what the text says. The Greek text says, for they were saying. And in context, it's the same ones who heard it, his family. So they think he's nuts, and they want to come take restrain him, because, I mean, goodness gracious, this is an honor culture. And if Jesus is doing all these things, they're going to bring shame upon the family. Um, and so there's this in- intervening scene where there's the demons, you know, the 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 uh, the story of of, of uh, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, and then at the end they finally show up and he's inside the house. And they're like, well, hey, your family's outside, and Jesus says, you know, this is my family, this is my mother, this is my brother, this is my sisters. It's it's kind of a repudiation. It's really it's kind of harsh if you think about it. Um, you know, if I had said that about my parents, I'd get slapped upside the head probably. You know, <laughs> here's my mother. Uh, my mom would not have that. Um, yeah. So there's this there's this family tension. There's this idea that that uh, perhaps Jesus's family did not believe uh, in him, did not follow him like. Um, you would think they would have, especially in light of the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. You know, with if Mary knew who he was because the angels had announced it, why would she doubt him? You know, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. So, you know, Mark's got a different tradition going um, than Matthew or Luke have, and it's just um, it's interesting to think about the differences in in how they viewed Jesus. But yeah, Mary, did you know? Apparently, yeah, I, she didn't. Yeah, it, to me, that, that's what I've always found interesting about Mark. Anyways, it misses out on the uh, you know the virgin conception. Uh, that seems to not be at least not a concern to him, and I think that fits in very neatly with what Mark's saying. Is Jesus' family didn't even know? It goes back to that secret motif. You know, even his family is unaware until he is, well, we'll talk about it in a minute, but Mark's ending is quite unique, and mm-hmm. Jesus is missing. Uh, that's about what we have. Yes. Uh, so the the audience appears to be uh, Gentile, or at least Jewish community, because it's explaining Jewish customs um, and also uh, translating Aramaic terms that Jesus mm-hmm. uh, said. Uh I find it kind of interesting, at least it seems like all of the Gospels were written for a Gentile community, and none of it seems to be really written for specifically a Jewish community. I mean, there are certain things in Matthew, but even Matthew seems to be kind of hinted more at Gentiles. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, well, so we may disagree on Matthew. Um, Luke, I think, is definitely more gentile and and roman a roman audience in particular just because how he frames his his case for jesus and for the early church he he seems like he really wants to make sure that he doesn't piss off the romans <laughs> you know <laughs> um, uh matthew though matthew seems it's very he's very pro torah um right. and not to say that mark's jesus isn't 
but the way Mark interprets Jesus isn't, especially in Mark 7 with the, with the uh, pure and impure foods uh, issue, uh, which Matthew changes somewhat. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, Matthew, I think, definitely leans toward having a somewhat, uh, at least a larger Jewish audience than Mark did, because he doesn't explain the uh, the customs the way Mark does. Like you said, Mark has to explain them for his audience, because um, they just don't know. Um, and, yeah, I have to think about that more. I, I, but I, I've always leaned toward Matthew's audience being more Jewish than not. But that's a good question. That's that's uh, and that's the that's the thing about trying to figure out who the communities were that these authors were writing to. We just have so little information to go on. Um, we have to tease it out by looking at certain clues within the text. And gosh, some of that is just it's just, sometimes it's just so subjective. You know, it depends on which way the wind's blowing, <laughs> which way you're gonna you're gonna fall on a given day. <laughs> you know, at least that's the way it feels. Um, like who to who was I mean the Gospel of John was that Jew, I mean I think that may have been a largely Jewish audience I don't know because the you know he has the situations where they've been kicked out of the synagogues which seems like it would only be important to a Jewish audience that was far enough removed from um, the events of seventy that it would matter um, but again I mean it's just these are the mysteries that that scholars deal with. Um, and that they write books about, and we'll probably always write books about. You know, what is it? Is it the book of Ecclesiastes where he says the the of uh, the making of books there will be no end. <laughs> you know, right? I think he was talking about biblical studies. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, one scene in the Gospels that I have always found puzzling and and strange, and I've I've read tons of scholarly literature, and and. Uh, and that is sending the demons into the pigs. What <laughs> in the world is going on there? Yeah, that's one of those where, you know, you read some and they're like, well, this is a, this is a polemic against the Roman Empire, right? Because the uh, boars, uh, one of the Roman legions was represented by a boar and the, the name of the demons is legion. And, you know, I think that maybe reading it, you know, too much into it. I don't know. Um. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that is such a it's a really bizarre story because here you have Jesus and he's going into gentile territory. He's not he's not in he's not in Israel. He's he's gone beyond Israel. And so what is the significance of that? Um what I take it to 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 at least for Mark is to, is he's saying that listen, this is the the forces of evil that have infiltrated Israel have infiltrated everywhere else, okay? Which is to be expected on his worldview, because Gentiles have problems. They're idol worshipers, um, which is the the original sin of the Gentiles, is they worship false gods. So you would expect them to be demon-possessed. So by Jesus, who is the Messiah, going over there, what is he saying? He's saying, I have control over all the nations. It's not just Israel that I have come to rule. It is also the nations I have come to rule. And by making this step into Gentile territory, it's kind of like, you know, MacArthur returning to the Philippines in World War II, you know, which, you know, historically it's, it's, it's been made bigger than it really was. But it's the, it's the same idea. It's like Jesus has come to the Gentile territory. He's claiming this as his own. 
and he does it by casting out the forces of evil. Um, Joel Marcus makes this point in his commentary that the, fun, the, the, the battle in the Gospel of Mark is apocalyptic, and it's between the kingdom of God, the reign of God that is coming, and the reign of Satan. Because Satan has a, has a kingdom. I mean, he, Jesus makes that clear in Mark 3. He has a kingdom. And Jesus' work in coming to uh, on the scene, being baptized, being made the Messiah, is to, is to root out this kingdom. He's, he's stopped Satan, uh, so he's, he's, he's defeated Satan, and now he's trying to find all the places, all these little homes where all these demons live, and he goes house to house, territory to territory, and he roots them out. Um, but he includes the Gentiles. Because he has to, because in his in the worldview of Jesus, even the Gentiles will worship the one God. They all will. Um, but to but to do that, to do that, Jesus has to take care of the demons first. He has to fight them off. Um, and they when they see him, they know who he is, and they're terrified, which I think is just phenomenal. It's just great. It's great story writing by Mark. Um, it, I mean, we know who you are. You know. The, the son of the most high God, they know they, they're just frozen in fear. You know, send me to the pigs. Wait, really? Why? Like of all the things. Um, but yeah, that's another thing is the pigs are unclean. You know, pigs are not, they were uh, per Levitical law, not to be consumed. And so there's added symbolic value there is that the demons who are unclean, they're unclean spirits are forced to go into animals that are themselves considered unclean. Um, but yeah, that's uh, – what are your thoughts? I know you said you've read some you know, a bunch of uh, literature on that. What do you think about that passage? Yeah, quite honestly, I don't know. I think it – my opinion was is kind of saying what you just said. Un- unclean spirits go to unclean animals. Uh, you know, pork is very – still to this day, uh, even when I was in yeshiva, I mean, the rabbis would always say, you know, this is unclean. You know, never eat, I can never have pepperoni pizza, right? Because this is how terrible and unclean this is. And so that type of uh, spiritual realm of unclean demons uh, going into the pigs, that's, you know, this is Jesus as a Messiah cleansing everything that is unclean from, from animals to uh, unclean spirits. Yeah. Yeah, I think you and I are pretty much on the same page on that. Yeah. Um, now you, I know, I know you're asking me questions, but let me ask you, you're, you're, um, you're a believer in Jesus, right? Right. Yes. Yes. And, um, am I right? Are you have a Jewish background? Yes, I do. Okay. So, uh, about that. So to give kind of a long history, uh, my family's from Prussia with a P not Russia, but yeah. Prussia, mm-hmm. uh, Back in the 1800s, forced to convert to Catholicism, uh, and so we were at least Catholic in name. We we built two churches. Uh, wow. Our names are slapped on those two churches, and but uh, to say that we were devout would be uh, a complete lie. I don't think <laughs> very many <laughs> members of my family are very devout in Catholicism. But uh, so, and I grew up in uh, in a, what is called a Christadelphian community, and I think we, me and you have a mutual Twitter friend that is also a Christian and that's yeah. how I know him. So Sinian, uh, is, is that another term that you yeah. guys use? Yeah. 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 We're, we're not Trinitarians. We're, we're Socinians. 
Uh, and so that's kind of the background. It's kind of a, a collection of different religions that I've clung on to Christadelphian, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because I've seen you post some things about um, some of your uh, Jewish rituals. Um, and I've always been intrigued by that because uh, I, I also knew you were a believer in Jesus. But, uh, you know, I mean, that those two things go together easily. You know, Paul was a, a Jew who believed in Jesus. So, you know, and for me, a lot of like, like for Shabbos and, and you know, like right now, Hanukkah, main thing is it, it, my last name is Missouri and there's 139 Missouri's killed in the Holocaust. Oh and my. so I want to make sure that my children, you know, carry on the traditions, you know, that we've we've had for over 2000 years. And uh, that's that's the main reason I, I want to carry on those traditions is to instill them in my kids and yeah. keep that culture going. That's that's a, and that's a that's a very noble, very good goal to have those traditions. I mean, even as an atheist, you know, I. I I have no Jewish blood in me whatsoever, and I'm not a Christian. But there's certain holidays, holidays like Christmas, that I like to celebrate because um, it's part of that tradition, you know. And uh, regardless right. of what exactly you believe, um, you know, it's just good to hold on to those. It gives you some kind of, it gives you a lot of meaning, a lot of a lot of meaning. And but uh, that's interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. I I, I didn't know yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so. So if you see some weird, weird, different things, contradictions that appear, that's that's the reason it's like that. It's just uh, <laughs> I come from a a, a mixture uh, of a background. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. Going back to to Mark's Jesus, um, why does Jesus not want to wash his hand, and does he want us to get to uh, get COVID? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So I'm gonna give you, uh, I'm gonna give you two answers. Um, the first, the first one is, I don't know. Um, I used to think I knew when I did that blog, the episode. I thought I knew what exactly was going on in that text, but now I'm not quite so sure. There's a book I'm reading right now by Matthew Thiessen called "Jesus and the Forces of Death." Um, and that's, I think that's one of the passages he's, he addresses is Mark seven. So I want to get to see what he says more about it. Cause I, when I wrote the episode script, I, I thought I had a good handle on the corresponding Levitical laws. And now I'm not so sure. Um, so I'm planning on rewriting that episode for a blog post and updating it. Uh, hopefully it'll, it'll be a while before that happens. Um, because I just, I'm less confident. I used to think, well, <clears throat> Jesus really was saying all foods were clean. But no, that's Mark saying that. That's his editorial comment. And Matthew omits it, which means Matthew doesn't agree with Mark. But does that mean Matthew didn't agree with Jesus? Well, I don't know. Um, but, you know, to the, <laughs> so there's atheists who say, well, look, he didn't believe there was germs and he's telling you not to wash. No, that's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. His argument is nothing to do. First of all, he didn't know about germs. Jesus didn't know about germs. He was a first century Jew. Nobody knew about germs. Um, uh, and that wasn't what the Levitical law, the, the Pharisaical law was interested in anyways. Um, you know, why would the Pharisees want you to wash everything? Well, they believed that your house should be a little temple. 
and that you should keep yourself pure. Uh, because to go to the temple, you could not be unclean, you know, uh, because once you become unclean, uh, being unclean in and of itself isn't a problem until you enter sacred space. And once you enter sacred space and you're unclean, you commit a sin and you anger the deity. Um, but but it's not in and of itself wrong to be impure, unclean. Uh, the word there is akathartos um, in Greek. But uh, either way, see, I, I had, I, I, you had to ask me that question, didn't you? You had to ask me that question. It's the <laughs> one question I, I was hoping no one would ask because I just, oh, my, my I, I feel myself shifting. My, I feel my views changing. And it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> but it's, it's good for me because I need to rethink some of those things. But if you read that text, I mean, you've read the text. Right. Couldn't you see how Mark gets that answer? Like Mark yeah, says, he declares sure. all foods clean. I, I, I can see where Mark gets that. You know, it, it, it just reads that way, kind of. But, you know, I've read some scholars who say, well, if you really dig into it, this is an inter, intra-Jewish debate. And he's not really saying that you can just eat anything. He's 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 making priorities, like he's emphasizing what needs to be emphasized, not diminishing the law, but just saying, here's where our focus needs to be. It's just I don't know. It it, it that reading reading more about that passage in the last probably six seven months has made me realize how little I know about the Jewish law, and how much I have to learn. Um. So I, I've you know. It's back to square one on some of this stuff. So hopefully in the next year I'll have rewritten that episode and, and put it out in a blog post so that I can kind of say, here's here's kind of where I'm I'm at the at now. Um because I think I'm wrong. I think that I think I'm wrong on that. I think that episode I was wrong. On some of the well, stuff. Well we'll I'll definitely be looking forward to the updated blog post. Uh, I really love the episode and the podcast too. And uh, and I've always been most comment, and uh, I have proof of this. I haven't exactly read it uh, over this specific passage, but I always wondered if that was a later edition. But from what I can understand or tell, is the part where it says, Thus he declared all foods clean. I think most scholars think that's the original. Yeah, yeah. And it's Mark saying it. You know, it's, it's right. Mark interjecting into the narrative. And 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 probably because he's writing he's writing for a Gentile audience, and whether or not the Apostle Paul's work had any influence on Mark, if it did, you know that's fine. But if it didn't, it seems to be that the early church, uh, many of them believed that um, Gentiles didn't have to follow kosher law. For the most part, there were certain things they couldn't do, like in Acts chapter fifteen, they talk about you can't eat um, anything that's got been strangled or uh with the blood in it right. things like that uh but beyond that they're not really you know they don't say don't eat pork they don't say don't eat shellfish so i wonder if mark is writing for this gentile community and he's taking this passage which doesn't mean what we think it means but he's using it in a way to say to this gentile community you don't have to keep the kosher law this is not for you so i don't know that's a possibility because you know paul's pretty clear paul doesn't want gentiles judaizing you know, he, he's telling them, do not circumcise. You know, you don't have to follow the Torah the way these other guys. I mean, he wants he wants them to Judaize, but he doesn't want them to do it the way his opponents are doing it. Like, he wants them to. Right. He's, he's, I love Paul. 
<laughs> man, he's just oh man, he's he's so idiosyncratic. He just he's a piece of work. <laughs> he's like, you know, <laughs> don't do it like they do it. Do it like I do it. Um, and so maybe Mark's kind of like that. Like you, you know, <laughs> you can eat anything you want. Jesus made it okay, <laughs> even though the the words of Jesus don't really mean that. Because <laughs> um, Matthew doesn't take it that way. You know, right. I mean, Matthew doesn't add that editorial comment. He takes it out when he redacts Mark. And for good reason, because he has Jesus in Matthew 5 saying, I have come to fulfill the law. You know, Jesus isn't the end of the law, like the termination of it. He's he's its fulfillment. He, he brings it to its completeness. Um, so, oh, I don't know. That's that's a really that's a hard question. A hard. That's a it's a it's a tough passage. Really tough passage. Yeah. And for me, the best way that I can reconcile it is there's there's two things uh, that I see. First, you touched on Matthew, or sorry, Mark's audience is definitely Gentile, and the uh, the rabbis, especially uh, Bet Hillel, which is the Hillel branch, which Jesus seems to, you know, if you're going to classify him as a particular Pharisee, it would probably be on more on the side of the uh, they that type of dietary restriction as you said they could not eat strangled meat or uh, an animal while still living was tended to be and that fits in with with acts and the other side is is kind of in apocalyptic literature and still to this day some of the especially in the hasidic prayers that, that i've read a million times is whenever the kingdom is established about on earth is there is no more um it's, it's all one big Sabbath, so you know there's not necessarily a specific Sabbath day, and the uh, same thing with uh, food. Everything is made perfect, so there's no distinction mm. necessarily. At least that's what some of the Hasidic uh, literature I've read. Uh, again, the Hasidic movement started in 1600, so it's not necessarily uh, yeah, the, yeah, parallel. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but if there was that type of that strain of thought back then, then it, it could help because Jesus did not fully establish the kingdom, but I think N.T. Wright has it correct whenever he laid the foundation stone, at least, of proving this is the coming kingdom, what it's mm-hmm. going to be like. Go ahead and start living as if you're in the kingdom now, even though it hadn't been established yet. And yeah. to me, that's the best way I can reconcile that particular passage. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, I, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. I mean, I, the only, I would differ, of course, because I think that Jesus fully expected the kingdom to come, uh, either in his own lifetime or shortly thereafter. Uh, I don't think he expected to be crucified, um, but that's a that's a point where you and I would probably disagree on, uh, <laughs> you know, the historical uh, theological issue there. But yeah, so it, but you brought up something about you know Jesus fitting into uh, Hillel's view. Uh, I think people don't appreciate the fact that when we talk about Judaism in the Second Temple period, we—it's not Judaism; it's Judaisms. Like Correct. Jews were constantly debating over topics, constantly arguing. This was part of their faith. This is what they. This was a good thing for them, you know. And I think we don't appreciate the fact that that there was many different ways to be Jewish. Then there was—I mean—they generally agreed on most fundamental things of course but um you know they they not everyone believed there would be a messiah who was coming you know uh not everyone believed there'd be a davidic messiah 
not everyone believed there would be one Messiah. Um, you know, there's all these different views, and we just don't appreciate the fact that Jesus is in is one aspect of Judaism and not the only aspect of Judaism, uh, which makes it just, I think, wonderful in so many ways. You know, it was the same thing with Christianity. There was not just one Christianity. There was many Christianities, um, and I think that was good. <laughs> you know, it wasn't until the proto-Orthodox that they stamped out all the dissenters, the, the heretics, you know. And I think that they lost a lot. There's a lot they lose when you, you know, silence voices like that. But, uh, but either way, I think, I think, yeah, like you said, um, you know, Jesus seems to belong to one particular camp. Um, he seems very in line with the Pharisees on a lot of views. He also seems in line with John the Baptist, who may have been in a scene. I mean, it's possible. Um, so I don't know. At least some kind of some kind of ascetic uh, view. Uh, yeah, John exactly. Yeah, I just think you know we try to box Jesus in, and it's just he's so you can't really do that. Jesus doesn't like to be boxed in. <laughs> <laughs> right. So with going back to Mark. Uh, most Bibles, and this is more for our listeners, uh, most Bibles have a note that uh, there's multiple endings with Mark, and uh, the oldest ending that we have is ends with verse 8, which basically uh, Jesus uh, is missing from the tomb, <laughs> and the, the women are told, uh, you know, go, go tell what happened, he's risen, and then it just says they flee away telling nobody because they're scared, mm-hmm. which... There's additional endings after that saying, oh, they, you know, they told the apostles, you know, they went and told the story to everybody. So with going back to the original ending that we know of, why does Mark end it like that? Yeah, so I I would ask, I would ask, why not? You know, Um, when you read the Gospel of Mark... There's a couple of things that pop out. One we've already talked about, the secrecy motif, right? Another one that is kind of related to that is the frequent misunderstanding of the disciples. They are constantly getting it wrong. Um, You look at um, the story of Jesus walking on water, and he comes to the boat, and they're terrified. They think he's a ghost, right? And he says, don't be afraid, it's me. And he gets in the boat, the winds cease, you know, and... And how does the text end? It says, well, they they were afraid because they didn't understand. And then it's because of the loaves, which is a reference to the feeding of the, I think, the 5,000, maybe the 4,000. But either way, they frequently don't understand what's going on. And it extends to almost every follower of Jesus, including the women. Now, what the women have going for them, of course, is they're there when Jesus dies. They are present at the cross. They're from a distance. You know, but they're there. They're there to see him be buried. And they're the only ones willing to get up on Sunday morning and go to anoint him. So they've shown more guts, uh, which is to their, you know, as far as Mark is concerned, this is a testimony to their belief, their faith. But he has the story end the way that it should have ended. The story ends with them being just like the disciples. Just as afraid, just as confused, just as bewildered, and not knowing exactly what to expect. And I don't think this is something where Mark is saying, uh, it's not something negative. It's not something, in terms of the story, negative. It's, it's almost like he's saying, 
this story is so huge, you won't believe it. <laughs> you know, because nobody does. Like, what? No way. You know, you won't believe it. But it's precisely that hugeness of the story that makes it so compelling. Because we know that Jesus has already said to the disciples, you are going to scatter. I will meet you in Galilee after I've been raised. And so what does this, this the angel or whoever he is in, in Mark chapter 16 say? He's already told you this. Go tell the disciples. The meeting of Jesus in Galilee is not contingent upon the women telling the disciples. Regardless of whether the women report back what they've seen, the disciples will meet Jesus in Galilee. Because you can trust Jesus every time he speaks in Mark. You know, he, he tells you something, it's going to happen. You're going to find a cult in the city, bring it back. It happens. Jesus is always to be trusted. So a lot of people see that and say, well, you know, then, you know, Mark is saying that, uh, you know, there's no appearances. And no, that's not what he's saying. He, he's, he's not saying that at all. He's saying the exact opposite. Jesus' word is always to be trusted. And even at the end of Mark, it's still to be trusted. But if he's saying that, listen, being a disciple is not easy. It's going to be hard. You're going to run into some really weird stuff. Um, you know, empty tombs and angels and, and you know, your faith is going to be tested. It's going to be hard. Look at these people. They were close to Jesus and they still faltered. So, you know, check yourself. You know, make sure you're doing what you're supposed to do. This is this is Mark's message. Um, so yeah, I think I think the ending of Mark is perfect. It's it's a great ending. I don't think it needs anything else. Uh, I think later scribes thought it did. <laughs> yeah. They 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 were not satisfied. But I think modern readers, um, and even the ancient ones who the original audience would would kind of know what's going on, and would see what Mark's doing. It's, um. Yeah, uh, they were afraid. Another interpretation, though, is that they did go and tell. Um, the ending there, when they it says uh, they said nothing to anyone, that Greek phrase, uh, a similar one is used when Jesus tells the leper, the man with uh, the condi- the skin condition, to say nothing to no one, and but he obviously means except when you get to the priest, tell him about what's happened to you. So some scholars think, well, maybe that's what's happening. Maybe Jesus is just saying, you don't say anything to anyone until you get to the disciples. And it's just kind of understood that's what he means. Uh, that's right. a possibility, too. I think uh, Elizabeth Struthers Melvin makes that case in her book on uh, minor characters in the Gospels. She talks about that. And it's a reasonable position to take. I mean, I don't have a problem with it, per se. I don't think that's what's going on, but uh, it's not. it's a respectable position to take. Yeah, and to me, I think it's a great ending for a sales pitch, right? I mean, yeah. this is this is the story, and it kind of you know leaves you on a cliffhanger. Like I said, you can apply a bunch of stuff from this, but at the yes. same time, to me, I'm like, okay, give me more after this. You know, let's go, let's join this community type thing. Yeah. Uh, no, and 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 that's probably part of it. Is is Marcus saying there's more to this? Let let me tell you more. Right. You know, we forget this is a living and breathing community that he's writing to. You know, we don't know exactly who it was, but this is a community of the faithful who believe in the risen Jesus. You know, they know the story doesn't end with Mark 16, 8. Um, So, yeah, definitely. I I think a sales pitch is a great way to put it because that's exactly what he's doing. Let me tease you a little bit, you know. (laughs) So other than Mark, what is your other book or favorite author? book that you like to study in the Bible? 
Yeah, well, right now for season two of the podcast, I'm, I'm in uh, First Thessalonians. Um, so I'm deep into Paul. Uh, and I, I, man, Paul is just, he is something else. He is just a character. Um, so I, I really, I've enjoyed that. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, though, I like the book of Job. I just think the book of Job is just a, uh, the story it tells is so tragic and it, and it doesn't really paint God in the best light. And I think it's very honest like that, you know, it's very honest in a way. Um, so I find that a very compelling read, um, along with other books, like the book of judges is really fun to read. Um, violent. Who is it violent? Yes. Very violent. Yeah. But it is a really fascinating story. Um, yeah, so like in the Hebrew Bible, those are two books I really I really enjoy, um, and of course New Testament Paul Paul's been on my mind lately quite a bit, um, so um, yeah. That's interesting because my least favorite things are Hebrew parallelism, parallelism such as <laughs> Psalms and Job. I brush through those books all the time. Oh, really? The other one I, I cannot. I say this as a believer. I really do not like Paul. <laughs> uh, he, he has his moments. Yeah, he can be. Oh, you get frustrated with him sometimes. It, it, I think it's because he's he's very emotional. Yes. At least for me, like when you read Galatians, like anybody who's listening to this podcast, read First Thessalonians, and then read Galatians. And tell me this is by the same person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we know it was, but like, come on now. Like, he's so gentle and nice and so sweet and and like a parent to the first to the to the Thessalonians. And then you read Galatians and he's like, Who has bewitched you? Like, you know, who the, <laughs> what the hell are you thinking? Trying to circumcise if you hey, listen, if you do that, Jesus is gonna be no effect. Like, he is just so angry. And so ticked off, not just at the opponents who have tried to sway the Galatians, but the Galatians themselves. Um, and it's just like two different people. It's it's he's oh he's up and down and and <laughs> it, it, that's what makes him interesting to me. I mean, you know, but he can be frustrating. Yeah, be very frustrating. Yes, and I believe is it Peter that yeah is Peter that said uh, he wrote some very hard things. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I tend to agree yeah. with that. The, the epistle of Peter, I should say. Yeah, First Peter. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> he knew. He knew. That, he knew Peter wasn't or Paul wasn't always an easy read. So, yeah. <laughs> well, well, thank you for coming on. And uh, I have one more request for I any mean, point for your website, your Twitter, whatever you want to plug. Please plug. Oh yeah. So well, I I blog of course at uh, amateurexegete.com. Um, I have a podcast. Season one came out 2018, 2019, 2019. Um, season two will hopefully start dropping in January of 2021. Um, uh, and of course, my Twitter handle is at uh, Amateur Exegete. I can be found there um, stirring up the hornet's nest of Christian apologists at times. Um, you know, or atheists depends on the mood. Yeah, fundamental atheists too. <laughs> yeah, they're there. Ooh, they are there. Um, so yeah, you can find me there on the website, on the uh, on social media, and of course on the podcast. So, 
and I would definitely recommend everyone subscribing to that podcast. As I said earlier, it's great in the quality of content and, like I said, great listening effects. Uh, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is very enjoyable. Thank you.